going to be reading chapter 2. I'm just going to, to pick up very briefly at the end uh, where Philip was preaching last week. At the end of chapter 1, uh, Jesus has met with Philip and Nathaniel. And Jesus speaks to Philip and Nathaniel. Nathaniel says in verse 49, Then Nathaniel declared, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Jesus said, You believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. He then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They've no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the, guy, the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. This, the first of the miraculous signs Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Who's heard that passage before? It's always a drawback when you preach a familiar passage. You know that heard sermons on that before too. I pray, Father, with our familiar story. It's a story of the family. We've sung it in, in our songs of worship. We've read it, we know it. Draw back the curtain, please. Encounter us afresh. May this passage be a sign again. Straight to Jesus. Amen. In uh, uh, the prologue of John's Gospel, the opening, chapter 1, a couple of weeks ago, we, we reminded ourselves that John lets us know behind the scenes this epic story unfolding. The Word became flesh. The Word was with God and dwelt amongst us. He was full of grace and truth. All that had gone before, pointing, signaling, Heralding this day, Jesus, the Son of God, amongst us. 
And very quickly, the action turns uh, from that glimpse behind the scenes into the nitty-gritty of Jesus. Here he is. And in the, the opening stories, as we've heard, Jesus, um, uh, he's the Lamb of God, John the Baptist, the baptism. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He will clothe you with power. And John says, I'm unworthy to untie his sandals. And Jesus calls disciples to himself and forms a team and calls individually to particular people and still does. And I love how right at the end of that encounter with Nathaniel, in the company of the, those others, he's calling, come, come and be with Jesus. He says, you will see greater things than these. And he says, I tell you the truth, you shall see heaven open. In our language, in English, it's a funny old language, English. Uh, for many ways, it's easy, and for many ways, it's complicated. But the you that John records there isn't just to Nathaniel, isn't just to Philip, isn't just to those bystanders. It's a, it's a you that directs the gaze of the gospel, directs the power of these texts from those who are being narrated about and told about, right into the context of those who now hear it. It's like those moments on television, you know, where you're watching all the theater, and you're sort of like the third person, and, and they're all doing their thing and acting, and then suddenly one of the characters, the actors, turns to camera or turns to the audience, and immediately you know that there's a shift taking place. You're not just observing. You're being drawn in because they eyeball you. Do you know that moment? Where very quickly, immediately it turns from watching to now this is you. Now you are being addressed. And it becomes oh so personal. And that's what John is saying. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's not just for those people. His direction, the story, the focus of the gaze here is to us. To those who are hearing. To those who have the privilege of hearing the story of Jesus. And the gospel is looking at you front and center, right into the eyes of saying, you, brother and sister, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You. This is a day of grace, a day of opportunity, a day that the Lord is speaking and he addresses you. To capture your attention, I pray you would hear him. The wedding, great party, great event, week long we're told in the Middle East, not just to gather in your finery for a couple of hours and then a quick uh, wedding breakfast and off we go again. Uh, it was a long affair. I went to do a wedding uh, for Steve Perkins in the States. Cultures have very different weddings. In America, where we were, the privilege of leading the service, and we did the, the event. It was a bit snowy. It was near uh, Yellowstone. It was kind of in May. Lots of mountains, rockies, lovely. 
And you know how there are little bits of, in, in English weddings, British weddings, you, you kind of have the service and you go out and you, you have some photos and there's a lot of photographs of the bride and groom and the, uh, and the wedding party and it's lovely and everyone then has the big group photo and, and everyone's really reluctant to be in it. Have you noticed that? Oh, I, oh, don't want me in the photo. Oh, I can't be in this. You know, and, and, and the, the poor photographer and best man saying, no, everybody, everybody, and everyone's going, no, it doesn't include me. And you kind of think, you're at their wedding, come in the picture please. Anyway, everyone does that, and there's quite a lot waiting, and then you maybe move to reception, and uh, it's a nice, relaxed occasion in Britain, isn't it? And everyone's chatting and looking and lovely and, uh, and great. You know, different cultures do things different ways. In America, when uh, I was there, it was like when there were these pauses, because Rachel, um, uh, Steve had, um, had kind of uh, arranged it like this, and there were some of these gaps, but the guests were like, oh, there's nothing happening. It must be finished. Let's go. And it was really odd that suddenly they, they sort of were there. And because there was nothing to engage them, no food or no kind of speeches, there was just time to, to engage. They were like, oh, we're off then. And they just left. And Steve was like, where have they gone? And they, they, they've just gone because there was half an hour gap. It's like, yeah, but the, the, the country and Western dancing's not started. And they've gone. And we have that moment where we get to sort of 10 o'clock and we think, it was time to go now. You know, we've done our disco and we've, we've danced and jived and but time to leave. But for the Middle East, it wasn't like that. For the, for the, for the Jews and their weddings, week-long ceremonies, parties. And Jesus and his disciples were gathered, his disciples were invited with his mother along to the wedding. And it was all going swimmingly well. Until this major social embarrassment and catastrophe. That at some point, we don't know why the wine has gone. Maybe the fishermen liked to drink a lot, and they hadn't budgeted for that. Maybe it was hot and everyone was thirsty. Maybe everyone was just having a really good time. We don't really know. Maybe the family in Cana of Galilee couldn't afford much. We don't know. But the wine was gone. Dull. And so, this story is full of slightly strange occurrences. Quite why Mary, well, she's not called Mary. John never calls her Mary in the gospel, always Jesus' mother. She said to him, they've no more wine. I don't quite know why she turned to Jesus and asked him that question. Some people speculate, well, she knew. He, he was the one that could sort it. Well, he could, and he did. It may be because Jesus had become, at that point, the head of the household. Joseph, his father, at some point, has died. We know that, that, that Jesus, the carpenter of Nazareth, had taken on the family business. And it may be that, that Mary was just looking to Jesus as, as the eldest son, the one to whom she would naturally turn if there was a problem. Jesus, they've no more wine. It may be that she was a relative and she felt embarrassed. We, we're not let on to why Mary, Jesus' mother, said this question. And, and Jesus' response is, is slightly perplexing. Sometimes mothers hear it as a little bit abrupt. Dear woman, why do you involve me? 
you know, you're at, you're at your house and the, the crisps have run out and you're, you've got your guest and you say, uh, dear Johnny, can you just go to the kitchen and, uh, and get some more Pringles for, for our guests? Dear woman, why do you involve me? You know, it wouldn't be such a, a kind of great retort, would it, for your dearest uh, little Johnny or daughter? The word there isn't a harsh words. It's a word that we don't easily translate. But it's a word which, which signals something of respect. But Jesus' answer is really interesting. It begins to change our perspective. You know, Mary doesn't have a kind of mother's strop at this point and sort of say, come outside, we'll just have a little word. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. And now the remarkable things happen. That even though Jesus said, well, why do you involve me? My time has not yet come. What does he mean? The end of the story says it's a sign this is the first of the signs, number of signs in John's gospel. This is the first. It's not explained. The, the story moves on. He said this, verse 11, this is the first of his miraculous signs. Jesus performed at Cana and Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and the disciples put his faith in them. Next, after this, he went to Capernaum. What's it about? Well, Jesus sees six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Fill them with water. So they fill them to the brim. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. It's a sign. It's a sign. And this story in John changes perspectives. So the servants comply. They take, they take the water. We don't know if the servants muttered to themselves, oh dear, it's going badly. We've got to go to the master of the banquet with some water. We don't know if they dipped their cup in and found it, rather than being clear, had gone red. We don't know when the water turned into wine. But the servants obey. They take their jars. They go to the master of the banquet and he tastes the water, but it's not water. It's wine, full flavored, beautiful. It's not some plonk from Tesco. It's vintage. No trick. And the man speaks to the bridegroom and the bridegroom seems to pull it off with good face. This isn't how things normally happen, you know. You, you save the, you've saved this wonderful wine to the end. Normally they bring it out first and everyone enjoys it and then you bring out the ropey old stuff and when no one's bothered. You've done it differently. And the bridegroom, maybe he's just surprised. Maybe he doesn't understand. You've saved the best till now. The best till now. 
Well, it's a sign to say Jesus amongst us is so, so different to the prophets and the, and the teachers and the wise people and all those who'd come before. The best is now amongst them, Jesus. That's what it tells us. All that had gone before and now the vintage, now the classic, now the one to save, and now the one to sell everything to find. Here's the one of great price. Save the best to last. It's a sign, you see, that points us to Jesus. Why so much? I mean, I, I, I don't work in gallons anymore. George could tell us about gallons. There's a lot of wine, isn't there, George? A lot of churns, of, uh, you know, it's a lot of wine. Why so much? Why so much good stuff? Well, this story speaks of the abundance of the gospel. This story speaks of just the gracious outpouring, the lavishness of God's generosity. Sometimes we think of, of God of, of the just enough, you know, begrudgingly giving us a bit of grace when we kind of finally persuade him to. And this story undermines that view of God and says, Jesus amongst us just liberally, liberally gives and gives. Of not just of, of a little bit of goodness, but a whole flood of wine. Isn't that good? So much of God's goodness towards us. The, you know, the, the bridegroom and his guests kind of didn't deserve it. They were in a crisis and a problem, and, and Jesus answered, here you are, just abundance. A sign, remember, a sign. The abundance and the lavishness and the overflowing of God's goodness. And there's something in there, isn't there, of a sign in wine, of red, of the story that Jesus picks up again and again in the Gospels of his blood being poured out. Ceremonial washing, cleanliness, you know, they were meant to wash in the water from the jars and it would make them ceremonially clean so they could be good and dutiful Israelites. In that very thing, Jesus transforms that mode into a sign of the new way, sealed in his blood. As often as you drink it, in remembrance of him, life poured out in order for life to come. A sign. And it's a sign. It's a sign probably of, of a glimpse of a heavenly party. A party that we're all invited to. That in the other gospels and in various places... That which Jesus has come to do, that which the word of God has been made flesh for, becoming one of us to rescue this world and save it and restore it and open up a new way. It's a sign of the banquet invitation, of the invitation to all people to come and be part of this liberal, wonderful, joyous occasion. And a sign, too, that Jesus can transform any, any difficult situation. It's great that his mother pointed to him. And Jesus transformed the crisis. Where are you in life? 
Do you ask Jesus for his help? Why haven't you asked him yet? Why don't you keep on asking? And this story, this story challenges our thinking. Uh, there's a butcher working, and he's really busy one day, you know, selling sausages and doing all the meat preparation. And as he's doing his job, he notices one day that a dog walks into his butcher's shop. Dogs aren't really loud in, so he tries to shoo him away. And later, he notices the dog has come back again. So he walks over the dog, because his dog is quite persistent, and notices that the dog has a note in his mouth. It's a bit strange, so the butcher pulls the note out, and it reads, can I have 12 sausages and a leg of lamb, please? <laughs> and the butcher looks, and lo and behold, in the dog's mouth is a 20-pound note as well to pay for the 12 sausages and the leg of lamb. So the butcher takes the money and puts the sausages and lamb in a bag and places the, the bag in the dog's mouth. And the butcher's very, very impressed. And since it's about closing time, he decides to close the shop a little bit early and follow the dog, very curious. So off he goes, and the dog is walking down the street and comes to a zebra crossing, the dog, uh, a pedestrian crossing. The dog puts down the bag, jumps up, and presses the little button and waits patiently, picks the bag up when the man turns green picks the bag up in his mouth and walks across the road, and the butcher follows. The dog then stops at the bus stop and starts to look at the timetable. The butcher's like, what? Amazed. The dog checks out the times, sits down in one of the seats and waits for the bus, and along comes the bus. The dog looks up, looks at the number, recognizes the right bus, climbs on, and the butcher is now just flabbergasted and follows him onto the bus. And the bus travels through the town and out into uh, the suburbs. And eventually the dog gets off, presses the button clearly, and uh, moves to the front of the bus, stands uh, and gets off when the doors are open. So does the butcher, groceries still in the dog's mouth. Louis walked down the road, and the dog approaches a house. He walks up, to the, uh, up the path, drops the groceries on the front step. Then he walks down the path, kind of gears himself up, takes a big run, and throws himself at the door. Whap! And he goes back down the path, takes a run up, another run. Whap! Against the door. No answer. So the dog goes round to the back of the house, jumps a narrow wall, and walks along the perimeter of the garden. He gets to the window and bangs his head on the window several times. Walks back, jumps off the wall, and waits at the front door again with the sausages and lamb in his mouth. What happens next? Well, the butcher watches as this really big guy opens the door and starts saying, you stupid dog, how can you be so, and laying, you know, shouting at the dog, yelling at him, and the butcher kind of run out, runs over and says, what on earth are you doing? This dog is a genius, he should be on TV for goodness sake, to which the man responds, clever my foot, this is the second time this week he's forgotten his key. You know, in the story of the Gospels, of this water into wine, there are different perspectives. To the butcher, the dog was hyper-clever. To the man, huh, not so. Mary, Jesus' mother, she knows that this is Jesus, her son. 
born and trained as a carpenter. At some point, Joseph's died, and she's used to Jesus providing for the family. Many of you are, know about that, of providing, working really hard, making sure that the family is well cared for, the responsibility of the eldest. As I said, it's likely that Jesus and his family there were friends of those at the wedding. And Mary's involved, knows that the wine is gone, and turns to Jesus and says, help. You're the eldest son. Where else do we go? Remember the strange comment, dear woman? It wasn't an abrasive term or a distant, aloof term. It's more gentle than our translation, woman. It's actually loving. But he says, why do you involve me? And it's a bit cryptic. He talks about the hour. What hour? What's that all about? Well, the hour has not yet come. In John's gospel, there's this drumbeat that goes through every chapter to say his hour hasn't come. He's focused to Jerusalem. He's come for one thing. He's come to die. The word made flesh and dwelt amongst us. He's come in order to lay down his life for the sins of the world. He's come with a purpose. And his hour has not yet come. In Mary, Jesus' mother coming to Jesus, there's something of a redefinition of relationships going on. That Jesus is no longer just the eldest son, the firstborn of Mary. But the gospel is saying he's oh so much more. He's also the son of his heavenly father, Again and again in John's gospel, we see this refrain Jesus speaks, I only do that which I see my father doing. That Jesus has grown up and has been a dutiful and obedient and faithful son, but now he has come to fulfill the calling of his heavenly father, doing only what he sees his father doing. And reminding, if we have the perspective, to say, as he says elsewhere, who are my family? Those who have faith in God and do the will of the Father. No longer is the community that Jesus forms around himself based just on privilege of birth or birthright or being born in the right place at the right time. But Jesus says now the family of God is far, far wider to those who choose to come. Mary is learning that she no longer has special privileges, no special status that must come to Jesus like everyone else. Still true. We come to Jesus. All of us in need of a savior. All of us in need of rescue. No one is greater. No one is lesser. But all can approach. The perspective of the bridegroom and the master of the ceremonies. They're rather clueless in this whole story. They don't meet Jesus. It's not really explained to them in the story what God has done in their midst, but they know the result. They just see the result of Jesus' action, but they don't know it was him. The word who makes everything, making this great vintage amongst them. Miracle, nevertheless, his grace abundantly provided. Maybe this morning, you're like them. 
not attributing or recognizing Jesus, the very presence of God in our midst, transforming. We've heard about it in other people. Talk to people over coffee. How's God transformed your life? Maybe you'll be skeptical. Maybe you'll depart unknowing, none the wiser. But something incredible is happening all as around us. And the sign is to Jesus. God is abundantly lavishing his grace upon us. It says in the gospel, in the, in the scriptures, that he pours rain, provides food for the wicked and the righteous. Upon this whole world that he sustains, where so, so many people reject him entirely, don't even consider him in any form, and yet his grace is given. And then in the story, there are servants. There's the mother of Jesus, the bridegroom and the master, and the servants. They were there. They saw. They were the ones who had to do the hard work. They drew the water. They carried the wine. They were on the inside, knowing what was going on. But we're not told that they believed. We're not told that they were so gobsmacked that they left their job and followed. I think it reminds us that sometimes when we think about Jesus, we kind of, yeah, he's okay, but just not for me. Maybe you've been here in church many years. Maybe you've experienced the presence of God, but not yet following. Maybe you've worked really, really hard, carried and served, but you still class yourself as a servant, not as a child of God. It does happen too, too often, that we need to publicly come and follow and respond, maybe through baptism, taking those next steps of, of commitment or of saying yes to Jesus, of moving from just a worker to a friend. And the disciples, dear disciples, the believers, those who were sharing the wine, they saw and they believed and they understood that this event, this first sign in Canaan of Galilee, was a sign of the kingdom, God's kingdom. It may seem strange to us, but it reveals the glory of God. The Messiah, God's answer. Their perspectives were changed. Just in closing, I want to, to help us Maybe think about this story, where are we in it? But also think of ways, recognizing that we can change our perspectives. Because I really believe that that's one of the great struggles of the Western church, to change our perspectives. You know, we all have glasses on. We all do. It's, it's often called uh, the lenses by which we see our world. And sometimes they give us clarity and sometimes they distort or hide. One way to change your perspective and see this scripture as a challenge to the way you think, the way you believe, is to actually ask yourself about your practices and your beliefs. Do you conform more to what the world says or actually to what Jesus says? One of the things we're encouraging is read the gospel through 
Take time with it. Try and see things through a biblical eyes and find where, where, are the, where are the conflicts with what you think. On Wednesday, I took the interns out every week, and there's this whole wrestling, thinking, what's going to happen if we pray for people? Will people think we're just a bit weird? Well, they probably do. But beneath that is this fear of, will God show up? Actually, it's one of my lenses. Do I really believe that as we go out and speak about Jesus, God's Holy Spirit will impact them? Do we really believe that when we pray for people, something in the spiritual realms is happening profoundly? Do we really understand that? Do we really trust or do we let the fear get the better of us? Phil's talked about this, about inviting. Why do we not invite people? Often because of fear. Fear of what? What are the lenses you've got on? If we want to kind of see through the scripture and apply it, how are you seeing the world? Test your assumptions through the word of God. How do people in scripture receive guidance? Do healings occur on a regular basis, apart from the use of medicine and and in what we could class as natural healing? Test your theological view. Perspective of life. In this curious little story, water into wine. You know, deliberately expose yourselves to something that is going to to jolt you from maybe thinking, well, it doesn't happen here. Somewhere else in the world, maybe. And that can happen either by saying, I'll go on one of these short-term trips that we often run. I will put myself in that place where I'll have to rely in faith. I will go out into a place where I will be asked to step out in faith rather than live within the boundaries of comfort that I have. Every Wednesday, uh, when we go out, I've mentioned it a few times now, it's like, I really don't want to go out because it's a bit awkward meeting strangers. I'm an introvert, naturally, and it's not something that I find really easy to do. I know that when Chris comes, he's going to train us and help us and make us go out and do stuff, and it will be kind of heart-in-the-mouth kind of thing. But I want that because I want to have my worldviews pushed and my comfort zone kind of Defined so I know where it is, so that I know that I can keep stepping out in faith. Faith honors God. Spend more time in the Gospels, taking special note of the details surrounding Jesus' healing and his deliverance. See the story not just as proof of, well, his divinity and what he's come to do, but as a model for us. The life, the living. Maybe ask in the house groups you're part of or in the church to draw alongside people who move in the prophetic, move in that confidence in praying for people who are good at relating to non-Christians. Join with them and say, can you help me to learn? Change perspectives. Maybe join up with someone in your house group or someone in the church you know is on a similar journey. Can we journey together, not just alone? It's hard to change your thinking alone. You know, these things, this worldview, these perspectives are stubborn, not replaced easily. You know, the disciples spent three years with Jesus and he constantly had to remind them. 
kingdom of God is at hand. It's close. It's coming. God's amongst us. The king is here. See what the Father's doing. How do we change our perspectives, our worldview? How do we see the scripture working out into today? Practice. 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 Read through the Gospels. See what Jesus speaks to you about. And do it. And do it. And do it again. Again and again we hear stories of, of times people sort of say, well, this is a, this is a gospel kind of um, teaching, praying for the sick. And people do that and it takes sometimes dozens of time before actually seeing a change. A guy was describing like this, in a war you don't just shoot one bullet. Well, I pray for the sick and well, nothing happens, I'll give up. Actually, there's an ongoing, we will keep on. That as we pray for revival, keep on. As we seek to live with Jesus, the signs of the kingdom of God, the abundance of God, do as he says and he asks. I'm sure we see more of the kingdom. Amen? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, your gospel is amazing. Even that very phrase, good news, we live in a world that is often a desert of good news. Jesus, you are great and newsworthy today and so, so good. I pray your kingdom to come even now. As I've spoken and spoken of a way and a world and an understanding, would perspectives change? Would we grasp, please? Would we grasp again in this sign of this passage pointing us to Jesus that we would pursue you, we would seek you, we would turn to you and ask you for help again and again, trusting in your goodness and lavish grace. I pray even now for decisions in this wrestling, which way shall I go with the way I know or the way of faith, this way that's curious and exciting but fearful and, uh, and upside down to the way we know things. In that battle, that tug of war that's going on inside, please choose his way. Please make that decision for the way of faith, the way of, of the scriptures, for the way that the Holy Spirit is prompting you.
Jesus, as a congregation, we choose you now. Again. Say your ways, Jesus. Your ways. Teach us your ways. As we prayed for our friends, family earlier, pray now for each of us as we have needs. Where there is challenge, may the gospel of good news of grace, that Jesus, the transformer, come. I believe the Lord is saying something to some of us that is about something he keeps on saying, but we keep pushing it into the long grass. And in his grace, he's reminding us again. This is his word to you. Please respond to him. We want to pray as we've prayed for healing for, for anyone. Would you, would you be gracious and give us the opportunity to, to step out in faith and pray for you and to, to ask God's kingdom to come into your circumstance or life. Pray, Jesus, you change our thinking and our expectation of you.